Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the Bailey Gifford Prize. Uh, and this podcast is sponsored, as always, by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. We're grateful for their generosity. This is one of a number of podcasts that are conversations with the authors uh, of the shortlisted books for the 2022 Bailey Gifford Prize. I am thrilled today to be in conversation with Sally Hayden, whose remarkable book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, uh, is in contention for this year's award. Uh, Sally joins us from Sierra Leone. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So your book, um, is an astonishing and indelible account of human suffering. I only finished it a few hours ago, but it also seems to me to be about empathy and our shared humanity um, as well. Um, perhaps we can start at the beginning. So this all starts with a Facebook message out of nowhere from a Libyan jail, is that right? Yeah, um, so it started in August 2018. I received a Facebook message that said, Hi, Sister Sally, uh, we need your help. We're under bad condition in Libya prison. If you have time, I will tell you all the story. And yeah, like you said, it came pretty much out of nowhere. And I luckily was at home, like not doing that much at the time. And so I responded. Um, I normally respond to people saying, I'm a journalist, you know, I, I can't help you but I'm happy to listen to what you have to say or I'm happy to speak to you. So um, this guy who was messaging me, he started saying that he was in what he called a prison. It turned out to be a migrant detention center in Tripoli, the capital of Libya, and that there were 500 of them, men, women and children who had been locked up for months. And I, I think the day before a war had broken out, this is how he described it. And the guards who had been keeping them locked up had run away and so they had been left without food and without water and were basically just desperate they didn't know what was going to happen to them they could hear the sounds of warfare around them you know at one point they could see smoke rising um and they were terrified and so this basically began years of my life trying to uh, investigate what was going on what transpired so of course I did all the verification stuff you know I was very skeptical at the beginning and tried to get GPS locations selfies you know contacted other sources in Libya trying to confirm all this information um, and it was eventually confirmed uh, by multiple sources and all this time I had been in contact with this first man who had got in touch with me but um, initially I thought that this was an isolated incident you know this must be some sort of oversight and you know, if I raised awareness of this particular situation that these people would be helped. But what became clear quite quickly was both that that wasn't true, but also that they were all people who had been locked up as a direct result of European Union migration policy. So they had attempted to cross the Central Mediterranean Sea, what's uh, or the Central Mediterranean is known as the deadliest migration route in the world. It's been called that by the UN. And they had been intercepted at sea forced back to Libya and then locked up indefinitely. And pretty quickly, I started to realize that they weren't the only ones um, to date since 2017, when this policy began. Um, basically, the EU is supporting the Libyan Coast Guard to do interceptions, but the EU also conducts surveillance, so flying drones, helicopters, planes to spot refugee boats. 
um, to to collect the information about where they are and uh, transmit that to the Libyan Coast Guard to intercept them. And since then, more than 104,000 men, women and children have now been caught this way and forced back to Libya. Before we drill into some of this, can we just have a quick conversation about language? At the very end of your book, you distinguish between migrants and refugees and asylum seekers, and you talk about your preferred language. Because as you say at the end of your book, words words really matter. Are, you know, are incarcerated people protesting or rioting? Can we talk a bit about how you made the language decisions you did in you wrote when you wrote the book and what were the what were the hard balancing acts that you had to achieve? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that this was a question that I was asking myself um, all of the time that I was writing, really. And I, I mean, I've worked as a journalist now for nearly a decade, so I had been reporting on migration and refugee-related issues before I started reporting that book. It did turn out, actually, that that was how, or that was why they knew to contact me, those first people. But, um, but yeah, it was something that I had already been thinking about you know, the way that we use language, the words we use, for example, very basically, do we describe somebody who drowns in the Mediterranean Sea as a migrant or as a refugee or as a person, you know? And I think there are um, international lawyers who I quote at one part in the book, they say, if it was a tourist who was drowning at sea, we would rescue them. But if it's a, you know, so-called migrant, then we won't. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I started to question and I started to think quite carefully about the way that words were being used and particularly the way they're being used by people in power and how language is separating us from the actual human consequences of our policies. And that was something that it became pretty clear to me, you know, when you actually are on the receiving end of the evidence of what is happening and you know it's crimes against humanity um war crimes you know pretty much everything you can imagine rape torture uh starvation you know medical neglect all all of these horrific things are going on and they're happening to people who are trying to seek safety um and they're happening as a result of european policy but the way that we hear people in power speak about this situation, you know, even the use of the term migrant crisis or European migrant crisis, it makes it sound like it's a crisis for Europe Um, or, yeah, just, just, you know, migration management. That's one term that I hear used a lot, which makes it again sound like it's something more, something less human than it actually is, if that makes sense. And Yeah, so I was questioning all of that, and I actually don't know that I necessarily got everything right, but I I wanted to kind of raise that conversation because I felt like we all need to be interrogating the words that we use. And and I do document in the book, you know, the fact that, for example, the EU is funding trainings for journalists Mm -hmm. um, across West Africa where they basically teach these sorts of terms, you know, so it's kind of teaching journalists to use the terms that uh, European bureaucrats might be using to speak about these situations when, um, you know, and, and, and journalists realizing that they're actually being targeted by the kind of migration management uh, policies that, uh, that are also being used to stop people from arriving on the continent. You know, all, all of this, it makes you start to question who, you know, who, who is setting the... I don't know who is deciding what language we use, basically. And to what purpose? Absolutely. That phrase migration management is just a crushing euphemism. It's dreadful. Um, 
so these migrants, which I hope is the correct word for the moment, these these migrants are stranded in Libya, are incarcerated in most, many instances disturbingly in Libya, but they didn't all begin in Libya, did they? Tell us a little bit about their points of departure and this this the, the journey to this point. Yeah, sure. So, um, so basically what happened, I got those first, that first Facebook message, but very quickly, my number and my name were passed around many different detention centers. Um, so suddenly I became, it became that I was being contacted every day by people in many different detention centers from many different backgrounds. And so, yeah, we use the term migrants, but actually it's not a homogenous group of people. There are people who are coming from many different countries um, and are there for many different reasons you know they're fleeing where they're from for many different reasons so I say the most people that I was in touch with um, the majority were probably what people who would be considered refugees if they could get to a country where they could claim asylum you know they could claim an international right to protection then that would generally have been granted um, those were people from, for example, uh, Eritrea, which has a dictatorship, Somalia, which has a, a you know, conflict with Al-Shabaab, um, from South Sudan, where there's conflict, uh, Darfur in Sudan. And then there were also people who were coming from other countries, for example, um, various West African countries, Gambia, uh, which did have a dictatorship, but now most people are fleeing because of extreme poverty. Uh, Nigeria, um, even I think Sierra Leone, I mean, yeah, I'm in Sierra Leone now, there's a chapter based on here. Um, and those would be more what would be called economic migrants, you know, in the press, um, people who are fleeing poverty. And yeah, I, I don't know, I think, I mean, hopefully the book conveys some of that, like that these were people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And because of because none of them can get visas, they can't travel legally, they can't get to, for example, Europe, like on a plane or anything like that. They end up in Libya. And when people get locked up together, actually, they might not know anything about each other either. So there was one Eritrean that I interviewed who said, you know, he didn't know that they have cities in West Africa. Suddenly, he's locked up with a lot of West Africans, and they're all talking about where they've come from. And there were people even from Yemen, from Syria, like Bangladeshis, even who had got there. And yeah, it, it shows you how difficult it is to make these journeys legally that they all end up together. But you had not only people from different countries, but also from different backgrounds, you know, dentists, musicians, artists, photographers, um, doctors, laborers, you know, many different backgrounds, all, all locked up in these detention centers together. And I want to talk about specific uh, migrant experiences as well. But in, in, in general, do migrants turn up in Libya, arrive in Libya, despite the fact it's a, fa a failed or failing state or because it's a failed or failing state? Uh, yeah, I mean, after, so obviously, like I'm sure most listeners will know that Libya hasn't really been a functional state since 2011 when Gaddafi was ousted. And right now there are multiple governments, um, but militias control a lot of the power. You know, a, a lot is decided by militias and, and they basically, you know, their loyalties can all shift. Um, and yeah, that kind of created the possibility for smugglers to operate a lot more freely and for people to transit through there. So it's been a transit country for quite a while, but, um, 
but yeah like a lot of the people that was another thing that surprised me actually in 2018 when I first got contacted I thought you know even from the images that we see in the media and stuff I thought that the sea journey is kind of like the biggest part of the journey to Europe and actually it's a very very small thing that happens at the end compared to everything that everything else that people go through um to try and reach Europe and yeah what happens is you know you have people who had actually already been in Libya for years trying to cross the sea but trying to get to the point where they could cross the sea um and some of them had come voluntarily some of them had told that they'd be able to cross very quickly and then once they get to Libya they're held for ransom for sometimes years um and others had I mean I even interviewed people who said they had been kidnapped they hadn't even voluntarily gone to Libya they had uh, been kidnapped from other countries but but most people are trying to reach Europe um, or most people that I spoke to. So you mentioned the EU you've mentioned the EU a couple of times so in 2017 the EU made a deal with the Libyan Coast Guard um, which I mean first of all I wondered if there was a sort of unitary unified Libyan Coast Guard service or whether it was rather fragmented and more haphazard than that and secondly what is the nature of this the deal and how has it reverberated for the in the for in the lives of migrants yeah you're I mean you're right but about the first part of that that um the Libyan Coast Guard is not as clear-cut as it sounds uh it's yeah it's like multiple groups really but um kind of referred to under that term and some of them even are former smugglers so some are even current smugglers um and yeah the nature of the deal was so basically for european vessels european vessels can't uh if they rescue people at sea they can't return them to libya because that would be a violation of international law so what's happening is a circumnavigation of international law essentially it's that the libyan coast guard is being supported with vessels with um sorry vessels and training and other equipment and the eu is spending tens of millions of euro on them and then also the EU is carrying out the surveillance to figure out where the boats are. And so one of the consequences of this policy, as your book shows, um, is that it sort of has galvanised the marketplace for traffickers and people smugglers, hasn't it? And created a sort of modern day slave trade, is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, what used to happen before 2017, this is what everybody's told me anyway, is that you would generally move much faster through Libya. Like you would, you know, be held by the smugglers maybe for ransom once and they might demand a few thousand dollars off you, but then you would be allowed to go to sea and try to cross the sea and many people would be successful. Um, whereas what started happening after 2017 is that the smugglers began to sell groups they'd sell you know refugees and migrants between each other so you might be held told to pay five thousand dollars in ransom to the first person then you're sold onto another group and you're made to pay the same amount of money again and that could happen multiple times and actually if you get to go to see you're very lucky you know because that's not a guarantee and then if you do go to see your chance of actually crossing is very low 
um, you're more likely to be intercepted, you, you know, either potentially die or drown or be intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard, brought back to a detention center. And then from the detention center, you're locked up without charge or trial. You can then be sold again back to a smuggling gang, you know, against your will, or you could, you know, opt to pay money or offer to pay money and go back to smugglers. But yeah, like you said, it's kind of a cycle. Who administers the detention centres? So the detention centres are technically associated with, it's called the DCIM, the Department for Combating Illegal Migration, and that's associated with the Tripoli-based government, but actually they're they're controlled by militias and different militias. And these detention camps are places of a, a terrible horror really aren't they starvation is rife what are some of the other i mean i I'm, i could read your own book back to you but tell us about some of the things that are happening in these places yeah i mean i write in the book that each detention center had its own particular definition of hell and that's really what it seemed like um yeah i'm sorry this is sad but like one detention center is in Tan for a period of about, I think, 10 months. There was somebody dying on average every fortnight from uh, starvation, tuberculosis, general medical neglect. One child died there of appendicitis. Um, her, sorry, his mother told me that she was trying to get help for him for three days and uh, there was no medical help basically. And he then died. And then her husband actually also died of um I mean, she says it was caused by shock. I think it was officially a stroke or a heart attack. But she says that she thinks it was the shock of losing their son. And in other detention centers, I mean, people were regularly dying and those deaths weren't properly being documented. But there was also just starvation, like you said. Um, Maybe in some of them, they might get one piece of bread a day or a a plate of plain pasta that they had to share um others there was forced labor uh when the war started so a war broke out another one and people were forced to move weapons to help even on the war front um to do yeah all sorts of other things and just general humiliations were going on there were children in them like hundreds of children who were getting no education uh you know suicide rates were high mental health people were really struggling with that um yeah I don't know, getting stuck in the middle of conflicts as well, like sometimes on the front lines. One detention center was bombed, a direct hit on one of the halls that was holding refugees and migrants. And I think still to date, only one person has been identified, only one victim, and the rest were just buried in unmarked graves. Goodness me. And to, and uh, you, 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 the book does a very good job of showing that technology is both a blessing and a a curse it's a blessing because people share sim cards often between hundreds i think but it's also a curse isn't it because smugglers ransom migrants back to their families and have to have to crowdfund their ransom on whatsapp or twitter or is that right yeah and you know like it's strange for me even to think of the role that technology played in this book because the book wouldn't exist without technology i mean it starts with me receiving a facebook message and i end it by saying any anyone could now be contacted at any point by anyone else anywhere else in the world you know who may be totally unacceptable or unaccessible you know physically you couldn't get to where they are but they can still send you information and evidence of what they're going through and that's one of the you know 
I don't know, like a, a moral quandary that you can find yourself in. Like, what are you meant to do in that situation when you're receiving this type of evidence? Um, and yeah, for me as a journalist, I mean, it was a strange, I never would have thought my first book is based on, you know, communication with people who are so far away. Like I'm really, I've always been kind of a proponent of going to a place and seeing something and, you know, being on the ground and at the same stage, like in this situation, people are locked up, you know, they're under the control of people who are abusing them. If you actually visit that situation, you won't necessarily see actually you definitely won't see the reality of what is happening because people you know those detention centers can get cleaned up before you go you'll have to call in advance they'll which i documented you know they can hide the sick people hide the tortured people turn on the electricity you know everybody's under threat of being tortured if they say the reality of what is happening so even if you speak to them they can't speak freely and so strangely technology gave me a way to actually get the real you know get the truth about what was going on there and and that was very strange because yeah like I said I you know I I wouldn't have particularly chosen to do that type of reporting but when you just start to suddenly receive all of this evidence and and you're verifying it and you know that it's true then that becomes um you know, you have a you have a responsibility to gather it. But but what I did in the book, um, just to talk about like writing style, I was kind of questioning myself, like, how am I meant to tell this story, uh, you know, through my voice when when this is something that so many people are, are, you know, experiencing themselves. And and part of the book, like what I talk about is how these these voices, these testimonies are being filtered and changed and and how that can be problematic. And so I tried to put in just direct messages from people throughout the book, just to make sure that those voices were still being heard and that it wasn't all being filtered through me as well. Yeah, that's very, very effective as well. Um, You create a ferociously effective portrait of the EU's very considerable ethical culpability in everything that's happening in Libya around these camps. Is it possible, without naming names, is it possible to say who within the EU is actually ultimately responsible for this um, moral fiasco? I think that's a very good question. And there's one chapter on of the book that looks at kind of legal attempts to get accountability. And uh, two of the people I interviewed for it, Omer Schatz and Juan Branco, um, they made a submission to the International Criminal Court calling for the EU to be investigated for crimes against humanity because of what is going on. And they were very interesting on this. They were saying, actually, the people who are probably the most responsible are the ones that we won't know the names of, you know, that we can't name because there'll be people who are not holding political positions necessarily, who are sitting in rooms, who are making decisions, but from the outside trying to figure out who exactly was in that room and who exactly was the one who said this should happen. Um, You know, the system is deliberately opaque, basically. And so I know that they've been trying to gather a list of names who they say are the people who are responsible. Um, But yeah, I mean, there are people all along the way at the same stage that you can say they were in power when this decision was made. And even one interesting person that I spoke to um, for the book was the former Italian prime minister, Enrico Letta. Mm. And he said 
that he basically thinks everything went wrong when migration policy came to be equated with saving lives. He just said saving lives should always be an imperative. You should always save the life of someone whose life needs saving. But instead, that became equated with, you know, migration policy. And that became something that that was up for the debate. And he saw that as, you know, I asked him, does he have regrets about his time in power? And he said that that was the regret that that had happened and that we can see things that stemmed off from that, you know, that have got us to the situation where we are today. Presumably the citizens of the EU have to bear some share of moral responsibility as well. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think that this is even just a book about Europe or about the EU. I think what we can see globally is that the rich world is erecting borders and making it harder for people to cross those borders. And yeah, we see that in the US. We obviously see that in the UK right now. Okay, with this um, Rwandan deportation policy. Yeah, and there's a chapter on in the book on Rwanda, which was actually before that that policy was announced. I went out to Rwanda and um, reported there on the situation for refugees because the EU was transiting people from Libya through Rwanda to Western countries. And yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said. Europeans I I think that they, I think everyone should care like I wrote this book because I want nobody to at least be able to say that they don't know that this is happening but yeah I do see this as a book about more than just Europe and the EU and Europeans I see it as a global issue absolutely and um, at one point talking of global institutions you have a very kind of arresting line the book is brilliantly and vividly written you talk about there's a huge power imbalance between UNHCR staff and refugees, and that imbalance is so large that it's ripe for exploitation. Can you develop that idea a bit further for our listeners? Yeah, so the actual book, I mean, those first messages that I got, like I said, they came out of nowhere, but actually I found out later that they, the, the people had known to contact me because of previous reporting that I had done, and this had been in Sudan in 2017, um, so Sudan neighbors Libya, and it's one of the countries that people from East Africa would go to if they're kind of en route to Europe. So then they go to Libya. And in Sudan, I went out to report on something slightly different. And when I got there, I started meeting refugees, um, particularly Ethiopians and Eritreans. And they all just wanted to talk about the UN Refugee Agency. So they kept telling me, you know, don't report on anything else, just report on the UN Refugee Agency and the corruption. So there's legal resettlement, which is, you know, when politicians talk about queue jumping and all of this, I, I think that this is what they're referring to. There are a very limited number of spots for legal resettlement to countries in the West that are meant to be reserved for the most vulnerable refugees. Um, and they, they basically were saying that UNHCR staff were taking bribes of up to around twenty thousand dollars to for a family to be resettled through this route through the legal resettlement route, and so I started investigating this. Uh, I investigated it, I think, for ten months, and um, I ended up I interviewed a lot of refugees, but then I ended up also speaking to former UNHCR Sudan staff, and they were all saying that this is true, that this is a big problem, that staff. Uh, they said staff multiple staff were taking bribes. Um, UNHCR, I think, initially denied that. They eventually did launch an investigation and they found one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power. But 
at around the same time, I went out and I met a former UN investigator called Frank Montel, and he had uncovered a massive kind of similar corruption scandal in Kenya that was based around refugee resettlement as well, where UNHCR staff were taking bribes for resettlement. But his basic point was actually there's always going to be corruption and exploitation in a situation where there's such scarcity and you have so many desperate people who are just, you know, desperate to be able to get somewhere where they can start a new life. And Sudan is a very, one thing that people don't realize about kind of refugee situations, often it can be very dangerous to stay still. So in Sudan, even if you fled another country and you might even have refugee status, the police were exploiting people very regularly. There was like a lot of sexual exploitation against female refugees. There were a lot of other issues that meant that it was very difficult for them to actually stay in one place. Mm. And so they all wanted to get out of Sudan. And they were telling me, you know, our options are either we pay a lot of money and we go through the UNHCR or we pay like less money and we go through Libya. And from that perspective, they didn't see it as, you know, one is illegal and one is legal. They saw it just as like, these are our options. How much money do we have? And at, the core, at the core of that is is the is the principle that UNHCR senior staff had the ability to grant refugee status and produce documentation, which is incredibly valuable if you're a refugee who's well, left behind. Yeah, also there is also resettlement in Sudan. Like resettlement is is really valuable. And I mean, this is not to say because I I always feel like I should say you know some of my sources are UNHCR staff. Like mm. it's not like the whole. You know, it's not to say there are there aren't good people in the organization, but um, but I think, yeah, we always as journalists, we have to question where power is held and how it is used. And in the book, I just tried to do that um, or I tried to gather the, the UNHCR has denied some of these allegations, haven't they? Yeah, of course, like the UNHCR deny widespread corruption in Sudan. Like I said, they found one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power um, in Libya, I then went on to document, uh, the, yeah, I mean, people can read the book if they want everything in it, but um, sure in Libya, in Libya, one of the allegations was that UNHCR, because UNHCR receives EU funding through actually the same, it's the EU Trust Fund for Africa, so it's the same pot of money that is funding the Libyan Coast Guard, and there are allegations, including from their own staff, you know, who spoke to me, who say that they are um, concerned that they're being used to whitewash the brutal effects of EU policy because wh- when European politicians are interviewed and you say, you know, your policy is responsible for the interception of, you know, now more than 10,000, sorry, 100,000 people who are then forced back to Libya and locked up indefinitely in detention centers that have been compared to concentration camps by Pope Francis, among others. Mm. The European politicians, at least in the past, I heard this, would say, you know, we don't approve of the detention centers, but at least we're funding the UN to improve the conditions inside them. But then the UN would say, you know, when they speak, at least privately, they'll say we don't have full access. You know, we can't actually monitor what is going on inside there. But they won't publicly say that the EU is responsible for for pushing people into them. And that that became kind of a, a massive concern, I think, among UN staff as well. At least the ones who were speaking to me were saying they felt like they were being used to whitewash the, the impacts of this yeah. policy. Yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, but I know that um, your life 
is orders of magnitude easier than those of the people you write about. But nonetheless, you do mention at the very towards the very end of the book the toll that reporting this harrowing story has taken on you, and you face some horrible and threats yourself in reporting this book. Would you would you mind talking a little about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, in the book, I documented it. I faced death threats, and I also was under criminal investigation for around a year. And yeah, I mean, I think people can imagine for themselves if you start to get these messages every single day for literally years, kind of the impact that will have. Um, And at the same stage, I don't want to talk about me particularly. I don't think that this is a book about me. And of course, my sources were suffering a lot more and, and they and were you also very cl- you make that very clear in your writing as well of course all the way yeah they they were also risking a lot more um I think I should say like I don't know I I basically put the book together because I wanted this evidence to be available and I'm so grateful to the Bailey Gifford prize and you know I I didn't even know if anyone would read it basically so I'm so grateful that you've read it and I'm grateful that the prize has highlighted it and yeah anyone who reads it I just feel like that's you know that's why I wrote it that that they're aware of this and and the other thing I think I should say as well is that um you know I did worry because I work as a journalist I worried that my work had contributed or my reporting anyway had contributed to the dehumanization of people who are undertaking these types of journeys in certain ways I mean I'm not saying I'm just saying in terms of the form of it Um, or even when I was publishing things, I'd have to strip so much identifying information because of security reasons for my sources. And I just felt like that kind of was, was taking away from, again, people understanding that these are humans going through these types of things. And so, yeah, I'm glad that, that people are reading it. Uh, and many more people, I hope, will read it as a consequence of um, being shortlisted for the prize. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much to Sally Hayden for talking to us about her Bailey Gifford Prize shortlisted book, My Fourth Time We Drowned. This is one of a series of podcasts in conversation with the shortlisted authors for the 2022 Bailey Gifford Prize. The shortlist comprises this year Legacy of Violence by Caroline Elkins, The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, The Restless Republic by Anna Kay, A Fortunate Woman by Polly Moreland, Super Infinite by Catherine Rundell, and, as we've been just hearing, my Fourth Time We Drowned by Sally Hayden. Sally, thank you for joining us. Best of luck in the last stages of the competition. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Uh, do join us again for another conversation with a shortlisted author. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation too for their generous support of this podcast. Bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.